Hello, everybody. Welcome to today's edition of the One Million by One Million podcast. Today, I'm here with Kerry Rupp from True Wealth Ventures. Kerry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, let's get you introduced to our audience. Tell us about your investing focus. What is the size of the fund? What kind of checks are you, size checks are you writing? What do you like to invest in? And so on and so forth. Sure thing. So True Wealth Ventures um, Fund 1 is the approximately $20 million fund. We're focused specifically on women-led companies, which we define as companies with at least one woman in senior leadership. So it doesn't have to be the CEO, but it needs to be one of the core team members that's uh, responsible for decision making. So given that we're investing at the early stage, that tends to be you know, one of the three founders or you know, one of the few executives on the team. Um, and we focus specifically, so thesis is twofold. We believe that we'll actually get a higher return by actually focusing on gender diverse teams uh, because we've seen lots of data from you know, McKinsey to American Express to studies funded by the Kauffman Foundation, ranging from Fortune you know, 100 companies all the way down to successful small businesses and venture-backed startups, that when there is more gender diversity in senior leadership, those companies outperform financially significantly, you know, to the tune of in the McKinsey study, for example, which was mostly publicly traded companies, their top quartile of companies with the most women in senior leadership in this 2010 study called Women Matter showed, you know, something like 40% higher return on equity and 56% higher EBITDA. So it's pretty substantial, you know, financial outperformance. And yet, as I'm sure your listeners have probably heard before, uh, very little venture capital goes to women. And so depending on the study that you read, it's in the single digits, and you know the data that we look at is somewhere between two to three percent of venture dollars go to companies with a woman CEO, despite mm-hmm. that financial outperformance. So the first layer of our thesis is just take advantage of that, you know, arbitrage opportunity, so to speak. Um, but we also want to be more strategic about levering that, leveraging that woman or those women on the executive team. And so we're also focused vertically in specific markets where we see women as the primary decision makers, and therefore we think it's you know, really important to have a woman on the executive team in order to understand those customers. So with women um, controlling about 85% of consumer purchases in the U.S. and 80% of healthcare decisions, because they're making those decisions you know, generally not only for themselves, but their children, their aging parents, maybe their husbands, um, and, and comprising 78% of the workforce, we think, and this doesn't sound like rocket science, but the, the market data proves that it is actually unique, um, that, we, that there should be at least one woman on the executive team in markets that are so heavily driven by consumer purchase decisions um, and you know, women decision makers. And yet, again, the data shows that that's not true. 83% of venture-backed companies in the last data we saw don't have a single woman on the executive team. Um, so our specific focused areas are impact areas. We call them sustainable consumer and consumer health. Um, so they're things that improve human and environmental health where the consumer is all involved in the buying decision. So on the sustainable consumer side, it's anything to do with the home from the outside in that's more sustainably sourced, toxin-free, better for the world. So that can range from you know, eco-friendly appliances and sustainable building materials um, and nest thermostat kind of energy efficiency type things to products within the home. So furniture, fashion, beauty products, and food that are more sustainably produced. And it's not just the CPG kind of products on the shelf. It can literally be the platforms or supply chain or ag tech that bring those products to market if we believe that 
the consumer is going to pull them through and make their decisions based on that, you know, cleaner, greener, you know, technology that's bringing those products to market. And then on the consumer health side, again, it's where the consumer is involved in the buying or adoption decisions. So we're less concerned about who's paying as the customer. So it could be that your insurance or your employer or your, you know, healthcare uh, provider is paying for the technology. But it's essentially things where the consumer is deciding whether to use it and change behavior and be healthier. And so it's everything from health tech, you know, wearables. Um, software to light medical devices like new breast pumps and things like that that just require 510K clearances, but really not anything that, you know, the consumer is not involved in, like a prescribed pharmaceutical or a, you know, implantable medical device that happens during the surgery when they're anesthetized, and definitely not things that are really, you know, software in between the enterprises, you know, in between healthcare providers and insurance. It's really, what, you know, things that the consumer participates in that are really more health, wellness, prevention focused. Um, so we're so doing seed stage. Let me, oh, sorry, go let ahead. Let me stop you for a moment and see if I yep. got everything um, just so I – you said a lot of things. You like people, uh, teams that have a woman on the executive team, on the founding team. Yes, that's a, that's a number crit- one. mission critical for us, yes. Yeah. Number two is you want uh, to invest in B2C companies where there is a woman decision maker in either consumer – Pure consumer or consumer health. Is that, did I get that right? Yes, although it can be B2B to C. And on the consumer, pure consumer side, there does have to be an environmental or health, an environmental health or human health impact because mm-hmm. we are a certified impact fund. So it's not all consumer, it's things that improve human or environmental health. But is the woman decision maker in the purchasing uh, decision critical? It is critical. Yes, it is and, and look, it doesn't. Not not all decisions are always going to be made by women, but in these markets where it's dominantly women, um, mm-hmm. like yeah. consumer purchasing and health. Okay, got it. All right, so we're we're on the same page so far. Talk about geography. Where do you like to invest? Yeah, so definitely U.S.-based entities right now, just because we're a small fund with a you know local network. From a proactive perspective, Sarah and I are based in Austin, Texas, and there's a lot of opportunity here in Texas. There actually aren't any other funds um, with a specific gender lens um, in Texas. They're frankly the whole you know center sort of southwest part of the country, and so we spend most of our time in terms of you know, going to events and co-working and doing office hours, et cetera, within the state. We're pretty mobile, you know, from going from Austin to Dallas to Houston to San Antonio. But we will take deal flow from anywhere because ultimately, you know, we're about, you know, choosing the best investments um, for our fund. You know, we do have to consider that we are looking to lead deals and take board seats and be pretty active. So mm-hmm. a deal that's going to require us to fly somewhere else and have a local network in another place, we'll have to think differently about it. We'll have a different threshold or criteria for making sure we can be helpful to the company and we can be there, you know, as deeply as needed. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have a company in Southern California already in our portfolio, and we'll certainly look at deals that come in from anywhere. Um, we just have to maybe evaluate them slightly differently in terms of making sure we could engage at the level we want to. Okay. And um, what check size do you like to write? Yeah, so we're a seed stage fund, so we're investing, you know, generally literally in the capital S seed round, although there's some latitude to look at, you know, bridges into A's and into A's. We tend to be um, lead investors, the first institutional investors in a price equity round. And those checks for us are generally 250 to 500K as the first checks. 
And so the way we've modeled the fund, we've reserved two-thirds of the fund to stay followed on in most of the companies. And so you know, we expect to stay in, let's say, nine of the deals through their Series A and maybe three of the deals through their Series B. So it's not just a first check kind of fund, um, but we are trying to get in at that you know, very early stage. And uh, what needs to be in place before you're willing to write, let's say, the smallest check? Let's say take, it, take the use case of a 250K check. What needs to be already in place for a company to qualify? Yeah, I mean, that's where we start getting into the qualitative area where there aren't always, you know, black and white lines. Although yep. for us, that female team member has to already be on board. So um, we don't look at teams that are open to or interested in or proactively looking for a women team member. Um, we are really looking at companies where that person's already a very integrated part of the decision making. Um, and so that might mean, you know, the company coming back to us in six to nine months when they've sourced a team member that's a fit, but um, that's, a, that's a mission critical one for us. We are, you know, true seed investors in that we can invest pre-revenue and pre-product, um, but like all investors, you know, the more risk is reduced and out of the equation, the more appealing that that, you know, investment can look. And so we often see that the, you know, we want to see that the company has the ability to execute. And so if they don't have a live product in market yet, you know, they've got a prototype or, you know, they've, you know, they've shown the ability to actually create that, whether it's in this existing uh, company or, or previously as a team together. Um, and so it really depends on the specific market, whether the product needs to exist or that there needs to be revenue. You know, in some of the healthcare scenarios that we're looking at, even if they're going to consumer, ultimately they've got to be getting through the um, potentially the FDA process or engaging with healthcare systems, and those can be, you know, very long cycles. And so we don't always wait until that process is all the way through if there's other metrics that show engagement of those entities and the processes are underway. So it's not a hard and fast line. Um, but okay. certainly we want core team members, um, you know, some clear, you know, path towards execution. We're not looking at things that still have what I would call binary technology or science risk. So in the health space, for example, if there is a, you know, perceived new approach to doing something, and yet the clinical trials still need to be done in order to prove it, then it would be too early for us. Uh, we're really focused on businesses where the opportunity is proven, and now it's about execution. And so there are some black and white lines there, um, although everything's a little gray in terms of what is proof. Um, you know, so we don't look at things that where there's still something yet fundamental to be determined. We look at that as, you know, sort of angel funding or grant funding needs to come in first before, before we would enter in that scenario. Okay. Talk about your portfolio. What have you invested in? And, and uh, as you take us through some of these examples, um, talk about why you chose to invest in those. We got the women um, founding yeah. member part of it. But beyond that, what else, uh, you know, just to get a sense of how you think about deals. Yep, and I will actually mention the gender thing just as how it specifically we think relates to the outperformance we expect from that company. So today we're in three companies. The fund itself will expect to invest in about 10 to 12. Um, all three of them so far are in the health um, sector, just in terms of where we've seen the deal flow that's got the most potential at this point. Um, the first is a smartwatch for seniors. The company is called Unollywear. And it essentially helps with things like fall detection, guards against wandering, and medication reminders. And one of the things that's particularly unique about this 
product is that it's very targeted specifically to the lifestyle and the you know physical health of the seniors. So it does things like you know the font is black and white in really large font for macular degeneration, and actually most of the interaction or all of the interaction with the watch really is through voice. And so they don't have to push buttons and learn how to navigate a smartphone. They're talking to it. It even has Bluetooth to connect to hearing aids if the person is incapacitated in that way. You know, the batteries for the watch are on the watch band so they can be easily replaced in a way that actually even you know, arthritic or Parkinson's kind of fingers can take them on and off. And what that enables is actually wearing the watch 24-7 and just swapping out the batteries rather than having to take the watch off you know, and charge it overnight or in the shower when most you know, seniors, 50% uh, of falls are happening in those environments. So I mentioned all those features just to indicate that it's really specific to the needs of the senior. And the, re the reason we think that that has been, um, the founder has been able to do that is that she, like you know, many women in this country, is a caretaker for her elder mother. And she needed something for her mother and, and had to understand what her mother was willing to wear versus saying, thanks, honey, and putting it in the drawer and ignoring it. Yeah. And um, this, this founder herself um, has sold two prior companies. So she's a serial entrepreneur. Um, those were both hardware companies. One was sold to Apple. One was sold to TI. So it's also important that you know, we know that she has the ability to execute, to raise the funding, and to build these companies, has the relationships you know, to manufacture the product and the electrical engineering background to actually engineer it and lead that team. And so mm -hmm. a big part of this investment was her expertise and track record and then her understanding um, of this market because like, essentially all senior care in this country is done by adult daughters and adult daughters-in-law. So she and her mother you know, are the target market, and so it brings a lot of um, insight into the product design and the go-to-market strategy. Okay. Um, the second company is called BrainCheck, and it is a cognitive testing platform for brain health. So you can do on your iPhone or a tablet um, these cognitive tests that traditionally were given you know, in pen and paper in the neuropsychologist's office which meant that they only ever got to people who were already severely cognitively impaired because they were able to get one of the very few, you know, expensive appointments with neuropsychologists. And by making this available on your smartphone um, and in doctor's offices, it basically democratizes access to it. It means we're starting to get a much broader baseline of data around brain health. And so the platform can actually be used for all cognitive conditions. And in fact, the company started in concussions for sports, where you could easily baseline all the athletes before the season. And then if they were hit on the field, they could quickly you know, do the test on their phone and, and see if they were impaired. And then more importantly, maybe their parents could follow their progress over time as they healed and see when they were safe to return to their sport. Um, and while that was heavily adopted by schools and teams, and they had got about 40,000 users so far already in that market, where the opportunity became clear over time is as the device became cleared by the FDA as a medical device, now um, there's a lot happening in the dementia and memory space. So once again, in the senior care space, essentially market dynamics have shifted such that now the clinical guidelines tell doctors that they really should be using a quantitative benchmark to assess you know, an, an approaching senior's memory, not just asking, hey, have you lost your car keys recently? Have you found your memory failing a little bit? But that they should actually be using a tool. And now there are reimbursement codes and uh, clinical guidelines advising doctors and their patients to really get proactive around this because there are studies that now show that early intervention and lifestyle changes can actually have both massive healthcare and lifestyle um, benefits. They also 
result in great cost savings to the health ecosystem. So it's you know, one of those mutually beneficial where the doctor gets paid, the patient feels better, the healthcare system does better. And so um, that's the second company which really has both the consumer-facing element of you can download this app on your phone and track your own brain health, or you can engage with your clinician um, as needed to really take this to the next level. Now, what is the go-to-market strategy in each of these cases? Are, are, are you particularly counting on clinicians recommending this? And in that case, are you, or you meaning your company, actively uh, working with the clinicians to get them to recommend? Yeah, so interestingly, both business models are available for both businesses. So in the, for example, if I take the watch, traditionally these, um, the other types of devices that have been sold in this space, and, and honestly the, the old-fashioned standard was the I've fallen and I can't get up button on a lanyard, which was very clearly targeted to people who were, you know, really senior, not in a place in their life where they were going to, you know, care anymore about having this lanyard around their neck, and it was sold through dealer networks um, and, and, you know, maybe more when you'd had an interaction with a nurse and the nursing is talking to your family about your choices, um, that market's still available to you, Nollywear, and this is just a better form factor with a lot more modern technology and lots of advantages, but you can imagine now that this watch is also opening up a much younger demographic, so let's say, you know, the 70 and up who are still active and maybe playing golf and tennis and going out and about and doing things, but still want that security of being able to, you know, connect to a call center if they hurt their hip or, or similar, and they're maybe more their children are worried about that. Um, and so all of a sudden there's a whole new audience that could be reached, and that audience needs to be reached um, in a different way because they're not, you know, at that later stage working with a nursing home, et cetera. So there's a direct-to-consumer element, whether that's, you know, Facebook ads or other kinds of uh, methodologies. And so the company is pursuing both of those angles to get those different parts of the demographic um, of the market. Um, similarly with BrainCheck, uh, BrainCheck started um, not only through sports teams and schools, but also to parents directly. There is an app available in the App Store, and we've done um, some really successful tests around going directly to consumers. What's pretty um, exciting now, though, is that clinicians are actually using it in their offices because it's a, um, a recommendation from the American Neurological Association as of this year that they should be using a tool um, to do this testing, that that's the mm -hmm. appropriate, you know, clinical care, and they have yeah. a reimbursement code where they can actually make revenue from it. So not only are the doctors sometimes recommending it to their patients to do at home, they're often actually executing the test, you know, in their waiting room or, or with their, you know, uh, te technicians in the office. Um, but a patient can then continue to do monthly tests or, you know, continue regular tests at their, at their leisure on their iPhone app, and so there's really that mix of both direct-to-consumer possibility and the clinical pathway. That's very encouraging, actually. Um, now, what um, what trends are you seeing in your seeing in your deal flow, given the lens through which you're looking at uh, at deals in your geography, in your sweet spot? What trends are you seeing in your deal flow? Well, one of the things that's been pretty pretty marked, and it's probably not surprising when you hear me say it, but just was really interesting to see. While we're focusing on health generally, and of course gender diverse teams and not specifically women's health, is the volume of deals that we see that are, you know, related specifically to women's health topics. So whether that's fertility, menopause, pregnancy, post-pregnancy, um, sexually transmitted diseases, all kinds of this breadth of women's related issues. Um, and we think that's partly likely due to the fact that, um, there, you know, the venture capital uh, 
industry uh, has very few women actually in decision-making positions like ours. So again, the data ranges depending on which study you look at and which denominator they're used. But essentially, it's pretty clear that there's less, you know, single digits of venture capitalists who are women. And, um, and when you look at those who are actually making investment decisions at investment firms, it's maybe in the, you know, 1% to 2%. And frankly, there is actually really strong correlative data that shows that, you know, women are more likely to invest in women-led teams. So uh, I think it was HBR that did a study that showed that um, venture capital funds with more women in senior leadership are twice as likely to invest in a woman founder and three times as likely to invest in a women CEO. And certainly also understand these topics, whether it's breast pumps and how archaic the technology has yes. been to date, or the, the lack of options for, for menopause, and, and maybe even you know, not wanting to talk about periods and things like that. And so the women who have tried to innovate in this area before have you know, faced some pretty strong hurdles to fundraising. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of things in that sector. Um, and so that's really encouraging for, you know, there hasn't been a lot of innovation in that sector in a long time. So we see a lot in that space. Um, you know, we also see a lot of healthcare companies that are really trying to figure out what the pathway is, whether they're an insurance product that helps the insurer save costs, you know, over time by creating a more well health force that, you know, workforce that's actually going to preempt diseases. You've got, you know, hospital systems that are, focused similarly on the long-term outcomes, and they're very far down sort of the Affordable Care Act process. You've got other healthcare systems that are still very much in reimbursement mode and thinking about how can I make revenue from every transaction with a patient. And you've got consumers who are starting to obviously take more of the healthcare into their own hands and sort of the, the patient first. Um, and then, of course, layer on top of that sort of the personalization of medicine where you've got more data about each patient. You can give much more specific advice. And so you see companies um, in this health tech sector sort of trying to find their way with the optimum business model. And, and usually, much like I mentioned with the two companies we have, there are both clinical and consumer pathways. Um, and there are maybe reasons you would start with one versus the other. But those options are all out there. And trying to find the optimum market is sometimes tricky. So we see companies that come to us with a B2B healthcare plan, and then it becomes um, a B2C, or maybe they thought they'd go to uh, insurance companies, and now they come back and we see them again, and they're working on it and going to employers, et cetera. And so there's just a lot of shifting around, and of course, with you know a lot of uncertainty around what regulation and healthcare coverage, et cetera, there will be. Um, it's actually you know encouraging that the companies are finding how to adapt to op you know identify where the the business opportunity is, but it can make it really hard to know what the right model is um, because you can't just say oh that's this has worked before, therefore these kinds of business models will work again. Um, so that's a lot of flux. On the sustainable consumer side, we're really seeing a lot of the innovations in the sustainability sector are really still more in the B2B infrastructure side. Um, and so, for example, we'll see things around food waste, um, but it will be at an industrial scale and not really where it's impacting the consumer yet. Or it's really niche consumers who are going to go to the effort to you know, select these restaurants or these kinds of home technologies that will allow them to you know, repurpose food in, in this way. And so we're, you know, similarly with solar technology and other kinds of energy efficiency, et cetera, it seems like the bigger, um, more of the deal flow we're seeing today is still on the infrastructure side and, and not yet trickling its way down to where consumers can make those decisions. So. Um, it may be a little early for that to be a consumer-facing market for us to find the mass adoption kind of opportunities that are venture scalable. So 
We're actually going to a couple of shows coming up in the next few months where we're hoping to get more exposure to more deal flow in that sector. Okay. Are you chasing unicorns? <laughs> no. Um, so the other thing about our business model is that we are actually looking for companies that um, are pretty capitally efficient that aren't likely to need a Series C and maybe not even a Series B to get to their exit. Um, and we are expecting these companies to you know, be able to see an acquisition exit in a three to five year window. Um, okay. Really at the at really at the range where most exits happen. So, um, you know, the data will show you that despite all the excitement about the unicorns and the potential, of course, <laughs> of the few that make it, uh, most exits happen between 40 and 70 million. Um, yeah. And so we're looking for companies who can see a pathway to, you know, with seed funding in a Series A and maybe a B, they can see that they can get large enough or, you know, have a big enough EBITDA or whatever the sort of the metrics are in their industry that they can be an appealing acquisition target for, you know, maybe a $100 million exit in a three to five year period. And then our model knows that, okay, that's ambitious and maybe it'll take five to seven instead of three to five and maybe the exit will be more like 40 to 70 instead of that 100 that they and see the pathway towards. Um, and that's one of the reasons that we're, as I mentioned previously, aren't doing that binary technology or science risk. We're looking for companies that have execution risk only. They, we know there's an opportunity there, and it's just about whether they do it right. Um, mm -hmm. So we think we'll have more singles and doubles, you know, more hits. They'll just be smaller hits, and so that we can therefore get a good fund return, but it's more um, balanced rather than, you know, all of that coming in from the one deal and the, you know, nine failures. And given the sector that you're focusing on, you must have a you know a list of acquirers, potential acquirers in mind. Who would those be? Yeah, so you know the one of the things that comes full circle with why we think that we can have these exits in this short period of time is that you you know probably know that most millennials and and women are really looking to cleaner and greener and healthier products when they're making decisions in the you know, consumer um, landscape today. And a lot of them don't have a lot of faith in sort of the known big brands you know, that have been out there in a long time. And so many of the big consumer companies and the big you know, sort of data technology companies are looking to acquire companies that can establish that brand credibility uh, around cleaner and greener things with the customer base um, as they make those kind of decisions. And so we see big consumer packaged goods companies that are maybe traditionally not known for their healthy products or for their sustainability, and therefore you know, all the more important to them to start establishing um, a track record in those areas. Um, on the healthcare side, you know, it can often be the data that becomes interesting over time that you, you start to collect. And so it can be technology companies that are acquirers. But there are also models where in the healthcare side, it's still the healthcare provider systems or the insurance companies or the employers who actually eventually do the um, adoption or the acquisition, even if it's a consumer play, because it's going to affect so many of their patients or employees um, or clients. Um, and so, you know, we do think that all of our companies are targeting acquisition pathways rather than IPOs. Um, and it's really for their ability to gather up consumers who care about the, the, the issues that are behind our impact focus. Very good. All right. I think we understand what your uh, sweet spot is. And, uh, you know, if we see deals in that area, we will uh, 
shepherd them along towards you. We would appreciate that. That would be great. (laughs) Let's keep in touch. Thank you for sharing your perspective. And audience, thank you for listening. We will be back with another. You're very welcome. Audience, uh, you also know that um, you can come to any of the free mentoring sessions that we do week after week after week with your projects, and we will uh, be happy to brainstorm with you on your strategy. Go to the website, 1mby1m.com, and go to free public roundtables, and you'll find the schedule and the join links for that, the registration links. So see you then, and we will be back with another edition of the 1 Million by 1 Million podcast.